Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The History of England, episode 62, The Minority Abroad. Okay, last week we were all about the internal political stuff during Henry's minority. So this week, let's look at some of the more external stuff. During the 12th century, the English had developed something of a snooty attitude towards the other people of the British Isles. Not but who find a point on it, the Irish, Welsh and the northern and western Scottish peoples had been seen as barbaric. And events such as the Scottish invasion of England in 1138 stoked the fire of fear and resentment. Customs and conditions. Customs and traditions could be very different across the peoples. So, you might well have expected the 13th century to see the sense of difference and antagonism grow. And indeed, the events under Edward I would seem to confirm this very thing. But in fact, you would be wrong so to think. And the very opposite happens. Until the aforementioned Edward comes along, relationships between Wales, Scotland and England get much easier. This is because, at the level of the aristocracy at least, a shared culture develops. The basis for this culture is France. The loss of so much of the Angevin Empire and the length of time from the Northern Conquest does have some impact in England towards the development of an English culture and some separation between the English and the French nobility but they are a bit confused about what it means to them. Now they know they don't like all these aliens coming over from France, taking up positions at court, taking their women, drinking their wine. And in 1216, the Civil War and some of the atrocities committed by the French dented the view of the cultured French. But on the other hand, they feel slightly ashamed at being associated with the native English 
After all, the native English were clearly losers, and nobody likes a loser. The English Anglo-Norman aristocracy becomes English after 1204, but they remain intimately connected with French continental culture and retain their kinship with French families. And meanwhile, as I say, the culture of the Welsh, Scottish and English gets much closer together. The Welsh and Scottish military techniques are now very much in line with French and English practice. Family relationships across the Scottish borders and north of England had always been very close, and the same had now become true in Wales. Llywelyn the Great, for example, described the powerful English marcher lord Roger Mortimer as his dearest son. And indeed, Roger had married his daughter. So when there is conflict, there is a notable lack of jingoistic flag-waving. Rather, there's an understanding that fighting for local custom is just the same in Wales and Scotland as it would be in England, and that maybe the Welsh had done a better job. Here's a quote from Matthew Parrish, when the Welsh rise in revolt in the 1250s. Their cause seemed just, even to their enemies, and this especially comforted them that they fought constantly for their ancient laws and liberties. O oh, miserable English, crushed by aliens, and with their ancient liberties extinguished, draw a lesson from the example of the Welsh. All of this was less true of Ireland. There was an Anglo-Irish aristocracy which based its culture on France, but there were greater cultural differences between them and the native lords. As late as the 1390s, the famous French chronicler Froissart described a country without towns, ransoms, stirrups, proper armour and decent saddles and where courtly behaviour was unknown. So one example that illustrates the interconnectedness of the aristocracy, then. Take Geoffrey de Joinville, the lord of Vaucouleurs in Champagne. He acquired lands in Meath in Ireland and Ludlow on the Welsh marches, was summoned to the armies of France, crusaded with Edward I, and ended his life with Dominican friars at Trim in Ireland. So, a pretty international life. OK, let's start with a look at the politics in Scotland. Alexander II had joined with the rebels and Louis. His motivation was either a passionate desire to see the triumph of good over evil and extend a helping hand across the border to the downtrodden and the oppressed, or it was to reclaim the counties of Cumbria and Northumbria, which had long been at dispute between the two nations. I will let you use your intuition and historical training to come to your own decision. At one stage, Alexander and his army had reached as far south as Cambridge, but that was the high watermark of his achievement. By 1217, he'd agreed to give it all up. He didn't have the resources to carry on the fight once Louis had left. So he gave up Carlisle and in return was allowed to keep Tyndale in the north and the honour of Huntingdon in eastern England in fief from the King of England. This now marks the beginning of a long period of peace between England and Scotland, and in fact, if you think about it, since 1173, it's been a bit of a golden period in Anglo-Scottish relations. There's been the odd spat, but really pretty plain sailing. So Henry gave his sister Joan to Alexander in marriage, and Alexander reoriented his focus to extending his power northwards, and to laying the foundations of Scottish common law. Henry was careful and polite enough not to bring up the question of whether the Scottish crown was subservient to the English crown or not, since that would have been a bit of a dampener to the conversation, and everyone went away happy. It takes a concatenation of unfortunate circumstances and an arrogant SOB in the form of Edward I to turn a surprisingly amicable relationship 
into a running saw. In Wales, the first half of the century saw the emergence of one of the most remarkable of Welsh leaders, Llywelyn the Great, who dominated Wales for over 40 years. He was fortunate to a degree in that through much of the period he faced an English crown either without the money or the will to impose themselves. But it still didn't come easy. Time and again, Llywelyn bounced back from setbacks. He was a hard, talented warrior, but also a consummate politician with great charisma who knew when to fight and when to back off and fight another day. Llywelyn started as just another potential successor to Owen Gwyneth. It took him until 1202 to establish himself as the uncontested ruler of Gwyneth. In 1205, he married Joan, another daughter of King John called Joan, but this time an illegitimate model, and it gave Llywelyn enormous political benefits. He now had a direct link to the English court, and it allowed him to create alliances with the English marcher lords, and he used the connection with great skill. Not that Joan was always easy for him, so for example, she betrayed his plot in 1212 to kill John. But then, I've given my own daughters strict instructions to let me know if their boyfriends, husbands, whatever, are planning to have me killed, and they faithfully promised to do so, so surely Llewellyn couldn't complain. A quick recap before we go on. In Wales we have a northern kingdom of Gwyneth, then a middle kingdom of Powys and down in the south, the Hubarth. There are other smaller territories as well, and as you'll remember... The tradition was to divide inheritance between sons, so requiring a big bun fight to bring it all together again. And then around the edges of Wales are the English marcher lords, powerful lords with consolidated land holdings and considerable autonomy from the crown. There were a number of big families in the Welsh marches, but three in particular played a big part in Llywelyn's career. The first are the Breos family. They control a number of areas in southwest and central marches, as well as the Gower Peninsula far to the south. Then there's the Marshall family, as the Earl of Pembroke, who claim much of southern Wales, and finally the Earl of Chester, who's the biggest guerrilla of them all, and controlled the north. 1216 was a fantastic year for Llewellyn. He married his daughter to Reginald de Breos, and used this alliance to sweep through south Wales, taking royal castles such as Cardigan and Carmarthen, and driving a coach and horses through William the Marshall's holdings, and taking control of the other Welsh kingdoms, Powys and de Hubarth. Now the alliance with the Breos family would turn out to be less than fully reliable, but he also made an alliance with the Earl of Chester that was absolutely crucial, and throughout his life this gave him security from attack in the north. It's a nice example also of the blurring lines between the Welsh and the English, and the skill with which Llewellyn used the divided and factious nature of the English marcher lords to divide and rule. But Llewellyn was not just looking to establish one unified and powerful Welsh state. He was also looking to change his fundamental status. He wanted to be the equal of the King of Scotland, to establish that other Welsh rulers had to pay homage to him, and that no other Welsh rulers would have a direct relationship with the English king. This would have been a major change in status, which would allow him to exploit his feudal rights in Wales much more effectively, and in effect, would have established the Principality of Wales. Now he doesn't quite get there. Henry continued to insist on the form of taking homage from all the rulers of Wales, though he was forced, in fact, to accept the fact of Llywelyn's sole authority. Llywelyn's grandson, though, would make his dream a reality. As we've seen previously, the Treaty of Worcester in 1218 was a triumph for Llywelyn and a humiliation for the English 
confirming all of Llewellyn's conquests. But the quickly moving and shifting sands of Welsh politics moved again, and 1223 was almost correspondingly rubbish. William the Marshal Jr. brought an army down from his Irish estates, while Hubert de Burr attacked from England. Llewellyn wasted no time at all in knuckling his forehead, tugging his forelock and suing for a settlement. He lost control over much of the south, but was unaffected in his core power base of Gwyneth and Powys. And by 1228, he'd recovered control in central Wales and married his son to William Breos's daughter. And another Breos alliance was on the cards. As it happens this time, William made something of a rat's ass of the alliance by hopping into bed with Joan, Llewellyn's wife. Llewellyn came home unexpectedly from the office and did what any man in the same situation really wants to do. As far as we know, there was no sitting down to understand why this relationship had gone wrong. He simply strung William up by the neck until dead. And then burnt the Breo's lands to a cinder, seizing back the royal castle. Seizing back the royal castle of Cardigan in the process. The long and short was that when he died in 1240, Clewellyn didn't quite have the formal title of the Prince of Wales, but he had much of the fact of it. He'd also taken steps to make sure that his power survived him. He made sure that his son Daffid was the sole heir to his lands, and indeed Daffid did inherit, with his brother Gruffid disinherited. There's a certain amount of disagreement about just how great Clewellyn was. His detractors point to a lack of a lasting legacy. But there's no doubt that within his lifetime at least, Clewellyn dominated Welsh politics and had taken significant steps towards changing some of the fundamentals that had plagued Welsh states for centuries. What happens under Edward I really wasn't his fault. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honouring highly requested new colours for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Now then, we should return to France and see what was going on there. Let's just remind ourselves briefly of the political geography. John, of course, had been thrown out of Normandy, Anjou, Maine and Touraine. South of Touraine lay Eleanor of Aquitaine's old hood. Poitou, just south of Touraine. Angoulême, a bit further south, and even further south, Gascony. For a while, it looked as though Poitou would go the same way as the rest, but Philip Augustus had proved surprisingly amenable to agreeing truces. But nonetheless, English control of Poitou hung from the slenderest of threads. Henry was absolutely skint. So his seneschal were basically owned by the local big boys. And you'll remember the name of the real big bully of the piece, Hugh de Lusignan, Count of La Marche. Hugh's lands, powers and resources made Henry's seneschals look like toilet attendants. 
They meant that in Poitou, in particular, there was absolutely no control over the local barons. Geoffrey de Neville, one of the Seneschals and one of the Seneschal concerned, wrote to Henry to point out that the local lords, and I quote, do not rate me higher than if I was a little boy. Throughout the first years of Henry's minority, various Seneschal belged Hubert de Burg for action to bolster their position. Hubert can't really be blamed for failing to deliver. He was finding it hard enough to exercise any kind of control in England, let alone Poitou. So he focused on diplomacy to keep Poitou and Gascony safe, and while Philip Augustus was on the throne of France, everything seemed okay. Philip had no taste for further conquest, and at Easter 1220 he renewed the truce for a further four years. His son Louis was in a very different frame of mind, but for the moment he was occupied with the Albigensian Crusade. So, the Regency in England balanced truce with the French king against alliance with the Hugh de Lusignan, and in the end they had absolutely no choice but to keep the Lusignan happy. And so, Henry's sister Joan was betrothed to him. This is the same Joan, incidentally, who will later be married to Alexander of Scotland, so you can probably guess that something's going to go wrong. Because into this mix came little Joan's mum, Isabella of Angoulême, the one who once upon a time had been destined for Hugh's father, before being cradle-snatched by John. She had returned to the land of her fathers in 1218, no doubt fed up with the English weather, and she's probably travelling to and fro at this point, since she seems not yet to have deserted her son. She also added her voice to the need for more resources to support the government of Poitou. And then, in 1220, came the bombshell. Isabella had shoved her ten-year-old daughter aside and married Hugh herself, without observing any of the niceties and indeed rules that dictated that she discuss it with the king first. Now, Isabella sold this to Hubert as having been done entirely for her son's benefit, since it would presumably tie Hugh into the English camp. But actually, there's absolutely no evidence in what happens next that Isabel gave a tinker's curse for either her son or her other children by John, or the interests for that matter of the English crown. Meanwhile, then Hugh rather outrageously made a play to keep Joan's marriage portion, and he hangs on to Joan until Hubert agrees, and now with the Countess of Lusignan, La Marche and Angoulême, he is the authentic, honest-to-goodness, no-poo, ten-ton gorilla. Henry and Hubert had without doubt been stitched up like a couple of kippers. Isabella was utterly shameless about the whole thing, writing to her son and telling him to behave in such a way towards Hugh, who is so powerful, that it will not be your fault if he does not serve you well. Isabella then demonstrated that her love of power was every bit as strong as her love of a double negative by demanding that Hugh be given the towns of Niort, Exeter and Rockingham as well. So thanks, Mum. Hugh and Isabella were basically on the market to the highest bidder. And unfortunately for Henry, a higher bidder came along. Philip Augustus had died in 1223 after 43 glorious years on the phone. And in 1224, when the truce had expired, Louis came to a deal with Hugh. Back at home, Hubert was well aware this was a disaster and did his best to respond, calling together a council at Northampton. But just at this time, they were then distracted by the affair of Falk and they concentrated on reducing Bedford rather than saving Poitou. And when you look at the beauties of Bedford and Poitou, who could say they made the wrong choice? The key to Poitou was the town of La Rochelle on the west coast of France. So Louis and Hugh headed straight for it in July 1224 and the local inhabitants started laying eggs. There was an English garrison there, but it basically needed a major effort to hold on to La Rochelle, let alone the rest of Poitou. 
The Castellans Savary asks for money, and it looks as though Hubert in England managed to scrape 500 quid together, but it's not sure that it ever arrived. Savary accused Hubert of sending him nothing but rocks, which is either his way of describing 500 quid as not being enough, or there'd been some shenanigans on the way, and somebody had substituted rocks for pennies in the barrels. By this stage, the annual income of England had recovered somewhat to about 15,000 quid a year, still nothing more than a pimple on the buttocks of Richard and John's revenue, but about twice what the Marshal had been able to command in the Regency. But meanwhile, Louis and the Capetians were bringing in 65,000 quid a year. And here, put simply, are the new realities of life. And so, sadly, La Rochelle fell within weeks and Poitou was lost by the end of the year. And it's really not hard to see why, the poor old Poitevin had been subject to the raids of the Lusignan for years, the English had been unable to defend them for years, and had no money. So, time to swap sides. Louis now seemed to lose interest a bit. Further south, the towns of Bourg, Blay, La Réal, Saint-Macaire, Longon, Bazin and Saint-Emilion in Gascony fell in quick order. Maybe Louis felt this was a stack of cards, and he'd applied the required push and the rest was now on its way down, After all, Henry was basically left with Dax, Bayonne and Bordeaux. I should at this point tell everyone that since we will no doubt be talking a lot more about Gascony over the next couple of hundred years, or however long it takes me to finish these podcasts, it would be worth having a quick look at the map on the website. For those of you who, despite my constant whining, refuse point-blank to go and find the website, Gascony is the coastal area in the southwest corner of France, and is centred on two rivers of the Garonne and the Dordogne. It is an area that in the summer has more English tourists there than flies on a pile of poo. Above the great estuary of the Gironde is an area called the Saintonge. To the east, the region includes the Agenais, and then further east is Quercy. And then to the south are the independent kingdoms of Navarre and Bayonne. Bordeaux is the biggest town and port in the northern half, and Bayonne the next biggest right down in the south. Wine production is focused on the River Garonne, which runs south and east from Bordeaux. Anyway, Louis returned to Paris and left it to Hugh to mop up the last few outposts of English intrusion on the continent. But reducing Gascony was to be rather more of a challenge than he might have thought. None of the towns that had fallen up to that point had possessed an English garrison, and the big towns were Bordeaux and Bayonne, and they were determined to stick it out. In fact, they refused huge request for a truce and kept a force of 200 knights and 500 sergeants against him. Because Gascony may well have been unaware at that point of the existence of toast, but if toast had been available, they would have known which side it was buttered. England was their market for wine and they didn't want to lose it. Plus, it wasn't like Poitou, dominated by a few very big lords. Hubert took some immediate steps to secure Bordeaux's loyalty. He gave them the next four years' income from customs to help it repair the walls and conceded the right to form a commune and elect a mayor. It was a start, though much more would be needed if they were going to hold on to it. Hubert's response demonstrated how far England had come in recovering its position since the dark days of 1216. Because at last, it did indeed stir its stumps. First of all, a tax on all movable property in the form of a 15th was declared in England. And this time it raised 40,000 quid. Compare this to the poxy two-bit no-good and cotton-picking carriage of 1220, which had raised a poxy two-bit no-good and cotton-picking £2,617, and you can see that things are back on a much more even keel. So, once they'd raised the spondulix, they then appointed a man to lead the response. And this is Richard, the king's younger brother, who's about 16 by this stage. 
At this point, he was accompanied by the older generation in the form of the Earl of Salisbury, who presumably actually called the shots. Anyway, Richard arrived over in Gascony and was received in Bordeaux with genuine enthusiasm. Most of the towns that had run off to the King of France returned to the way of truth, light and justice. Two areas stuck out, the town of La Réole and Elisa Riddell of Bergerac. The former was important because it sat on the Garonne in the Agenais and therefore controlled river traffic down to Bordeaux. The latter was important because the family was in borderland between Gascony and the lands of the Parigueux. Hugh and Louis then tried to fight back. Louis sent soldiers to help Hugh's effort, and Hugh tried to relieve La Réole. But Richard caught Louis in an ambush and prevented him from crossing the River Dordogne, and the long and short was that by the end of 1225, Gascony had been saved for the English throne. This is more than an important footnote in history. Gascony would remain English for more than another 200 years. Unlike Poitou, it generated money for its own defence, for the royal coffers, and produced an invaluable trade. The revenue in 1306-7, for example, would come to a total of 16,840 quid, which is a massive amount for a relatively small area. And by the way, Isabella's marriage to Hugh was very productive, producing nine children, which gave her a grand total of 14 if you include the ones she'd had previously with John. Her Poitevin offspring will carry on the story of the Lusignan, and cause plenty of problems in England, as Henry fails to do what he should have done and kick them back to where they came. Now, before we end this week, allow me one little digression. I mentioned earlier that Louis was off in the Albigensian Crusade, and this is a genuinely fascinating event, and an example of the kind of dissent and heresy that you just don't get in England at this time. The English are, by and large, the teacher's pet, the good peoples, the goody-two-shoes, It's a tradition that was set by the Anglo-Saxons, who were very supportive of the Pope, and even a hard case like Henry I supported the Pope while the Holy Roman Emperor was trying to nuke the guy. The lack of dissent in England doesn't seem to be because everyone in England simply believed what they were told, since there does seem to be plenty of scepticism about. So, I think we talked a while ago about priests complaining that people only came to church for a chinwag, and one prior wrote, There are many people who do not believe God exists. They consider that the universe has always been as it is now and is ruled by chance rather than by providence. Many people consider only what they can see and do not believe in good or bad angels, nor do they think the human soul lives on after the death of the body. Now the lack of dissent in England is a bit odd because on the continent there was plenty of heresy about. Peter Voldo and the Valdensians are one example, but the heresy of the Cathars was the one that captured everyone's attention. It could be that the English are simply serial conformers, though I think later religious history might disprove that, but it's not until the late 14th century that we get any real dissent. Heresy also tended to appear in towns, so outside of London, maybe there wasn't that much opportunity in England. There is just one example we know about, where a group of about 20 men and women appear from Germany led by a chap called Gerard, spouting heretical theories. They were arrested and brought before Henry II and the bishops at the Council of 1166. They denied many of the sacraments and expressed the willingness to be persecuted for their beliefs, which was just fine and dandy as far as the bishops were concerned, so they were branded, beaten and stripped of their clothes. They were cast into the countryside and strict orders given that no one was to help them, and so they didn't, and so they died miserably. And with the exception of one stray reference to the burning of a Cathar in London in 1210, that's your lot. 
So that brings us, rather neatly I thought, to the Albigensian Crusade, otherwise known as the War Against the Cathars. The beliefs that were associated with Catharism seem to appear around 1143 and started in the urban centres of the Rhineland, northern France and northern Italy. The Cathars believed that there were not one but two equal gods. One, the Rex Mundi, was evil, while the good god was entirely spiritual. So therefore Cathars sought to be perfect and to distance themselves from the material benefits of the material world. This is always something of a pain in the backside for the powers that be, since they tend to be the ones with their nose in the trough. So the Cathars in France would point out all the things the French king did wrong, the venality of the church and its priests, the worldly riches of the Pope, that sort of thing. And thereby the Cathars inevitably got caught up in political disputes as well as religious. Nor did they help themselves by refusing to recognise the authority of the French king or the Pope. The Cathars got their biggest success in the south of France, which is where we get the Albigensian bit from, since they were particularly centred around the town of Albi. They flourished in large numbers, and their real break came when they began to get the support of the local rulers, who couldn't help but notice that the Cathars seemed rather better behaved than the priests of the Roman Catholic Church. Now the key guy here was Raymond VI, the Count of Toulouse, but also Peter II, King of Aragon, also died fighting the Catholics on behalf of the Cathars. Eventually, though, Pope Innocent III decided he was going to deal with this. Initially, the idea was to send out delegations of churchmen to put the fear of God into the Cathars, if you'll pardon the pun. But they got pretty much nowhere, given that the Cathars were supported by Raymond. So in 1207, Innocent excommunicated Raymond. In 1208, the papal legate was murdered, and this got Innocent proper steaming. Innocent preached a crusade, and the gloves were officially off. The thing about the Albigensian Crusade is that there are many different things going on here. The knights that responded to the Pope's call are led by a chap called Simon de Montfort. And the knights he leads are very much from the north of France, so there's a north versus south thing going on. Then there's the regionalism of Toulouse from the French king, and there's basically a land grab thing. Innocent said that all the lands of the Cathars were forfeit, so it becomes deeply attractive to the brutal fortune seekers to come and get some land. Certainly, men like Simon de Montfort made substantial fortunes from the whole business. So what followed was the brutal suppression of the Cathars, with the kind of brutality only possible in a religious dispute. For example, Simon de Montfort tried initially to terrify the Cathars into submission. He had a hundred prisoners captured, blinded them, cut off their lips and noses, and then left one eye for one Cathar to lead the prisoners back to the town. One commander in Simon's army asked how they should tell the Cathars from the rest, and the reply from Simon was, Kill them all, the Lord will recognise his own. The town of Béziers was taken and 20,000 killed. The Treaty of Paris in 1229 basically ended the independence of Toulouse and is seen as the end of the Crusade after the whole-scale massacre of the Cathars. But actually this wasn't the end. Catharism went underground and so appeared the Inquisition. Actually, the first Inquisition was in 1184 in the south of France, but it really gets cooking, if again you'll pardon the pun, with the Cathars. If you refuse to recant, you are hanged or burnt. The whole thing probably comes to an end with the siege of the absolutely stunning Cathar fortress of Montségur. After 11 months of siege, 200 Cathar perfects were burnt in a huge fire at the bottom of the castle. So there you go, the Albigensian Crusade, an extraordinary example of the brutality that a combination of religion and politics can produce. 
And one further tenuous link is that the Simon de Montfort of the Crusade was the father to the Simon de Montfort of English history fame, i.e. the guy that gave his name to the concert hall in Leicester, where once I saw Whitesnake, Dr. Feelgood, Saxon, UFO, Judas Priest and many other fine bands. Oh, and also led the first genuinely radical political movement in English history. I have a few quick thank yous for donations this week to Stephen, Roberta, Christopher and Brad and then to all of you for listening, sending comments, ratings on iTunes. I slipped over 100 on EOS iTunes, by the way, which made me very happy indeed. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week.